Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. And to pick successful long-term investments, I think you need to form opinions about their strategic thinking. I mean, it really is the essence of decision-making. And you know, it also, actually, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today, it holds true in our personal lives. We're all navigating our own lives the best we know how. And in the process, we're creating strategies to try to optimize so I guess I wrote Reasons to Pass to remind me and others that humility needs to stay at the center of what we do, that most things in life are just mostly unknowable. Every once in a while, there's a pocket where you have the right knowledge, where you can specifically act on that knowledge. And then to make it easier to pass, I came up with some particular red flags. So individual reasons to pass. That was Ralph Birchmeyer, one of the most experienced investors I know. He is a friend, a former business school classmate, and the author of an insightful new book, Reasons to Pass, a guide to making fewer, better investments. As a strategist or business leader, it is your job, or at least a big part of your job, to increase the value of your company and manage that value for the long term. You want to know, you need to know what an experienced investor like Ralph is looking for. He is a former partner at a global investment firm that had many billions of dollars of assets under management, where he headed financial research into banks, insurers, and real estate concerns. After two decades spent analyzing thousands and thousands of companies with his investment team, interviewing management teams, and assessing the value of a company's strategies, he decided to write down and share his knowledge. His book goes into detail on 15 flags that investors should be looking for when they are considering whether to invest in a company or not. In this episode, we look from the lens of what you as a strategist or manager should be thinking about when trying to increase the attractiveness of your company to investors. Ralph has maintained, as heard on the highlighted clip, humility as the basis for his work and sharing his knowledge. He strongly believes that anyone can become a great investor simply by understanding specific criteria, which we discuss in this episode. Now, we didn't get a chance to dig into all 15 reasons to pass in this episode, but we'll instead zone in specifically on reasons to pass that are relevant to strategists and business leaders. We cover the top four reasons investors might pass on investing in your company, why governance in an organization is so indicative of future success, and what specifically investors will be looking at when assessing your CEO or board or compensation or decision-making processes. He lays out some key strategic measures that strategists and managers don't typically think about, like asset liability mismatch, and why this can be such a game-changer for any company. What factors really matter when thinking about valuation of your company and why leverage and fixed costs are so fundamental to your value? Ladies and gentlemen, Ralph Birchmeyer. Ralph, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is great to have you, and I've been working for a while to get you on. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So in addition to the fact that you were part of the best cluster of Columbia Business School's history, my cluster, 
Can you complete the sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. Oh boy. I think if you really know me, you know that. I ask a lot of questions and I try to keep an open mind. I will say I wasn't always like that, thinking back to my youth and even my 20s and 30s. But I've learned over the years that it's a lot easier to learn when I keep my mind open. Great, great. So you've looked at countless companies, and we're going to go through some of the things that you look at when you assess whether a company is a good investment. One of those things is strategy. So what's your definition of strategy? Yeah, I've always loved investing. I always liked the idea of buying something that increased in value. So when I was little, I tried coins. I tried trading cards. Those didn't work. And eventually I ended up in stocks. And the thing with stocks is that strategy is the basis of how stocks navigate their own futures. Their strategy guides their capital deployment and, of course, their behavior. And to pick successful long-term investments, I think you need to form opinions about their strategic thinking. I mean, it really is the essence of decision-making. And you know it also, actually, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today, it holds true in our personal lives. We're all navigating our own lives the best we know how. And in the process, we're creating strategies to try to optimize. Right. Yeah. So it could be strategy outside of uh, corporate strategy as well. 100%. Great. So tell us why you wrote this book. This is an amazing book. I've read it twice and I've gone through. You're looking at reasons to pass as an investor. And what I wanted to do was talk about this as a strategist not wanting an investor to pass on their company. What are the things that they want to focus on to make sure that investors want to invest in their company and therefore make their company more valuable? So first of all, why did you write this book? So I guess I wrote Reasons to Pass to remind me and others that humility needs to stay at the center of what we do, that most things in life are just mostly unknowable. Every once in a while, there's a pocket where you have the right knowledge, where you can specifically act on that knowledge. And then to make it easier to pass, I came up with some particular red flags, so individual reasons to pass, which should just make me and others wary that the odds of being able to properly bracket the probabilities is lower in these kind of situations. Great. So I would love to go through all of them. We won't have time to do all of them here. Well, there's only 15, Kaihan. There's only 15. (laughs) So you've written this book, you've laid out 15 reasons to pass, such as high fixed cost businesses, financial leverage, asset liability mismatch, corporate governments, accounting. Some of these are ones that if I'm picturing myself as a strategist inside a company, let's say I am the strategist inside a cruise line. I'm there. I am in that business. This is the job I have. I could quit and go to a different industry, but let's take that person who is in the business. There are certain things here that maybe they don't have as much control over. Structurally declining businesses, they can come up with like a turnaround strategy, for example. But there are a few here that I think are particularly useful leverage points. And so there's four I thought maybe we would dig a little bit into. Corporate governance, asset liability mismatch, how you communicate your value, valuation, and building, expanding your circle of competence. And then maybe there's another one, but maybe we could just go into each of those briefly. So 
when you talk about corporate governance, what does an investor look for in corporate governance and what should management be thinking about with regard to corporate governance that would attract the types of investors that they want, say long-term investors? Kaihan, I appreciate you having read my book so carefully and maybe it came across that corporate governance was my favorite of all the reasons to pass. And as I pointed out earlier, it's so easy for companies to get this right, but it's so hard to actually implement excellent corporate governance And let me just backpedal for a quick second. Think about the perfect benevolent CEO. They don't need to have good corporate governance because they're always going to do what's best for the shareholders. They don't need any of these checks and balances that corporate governance builds into the process. Same with, for example, president of the United States. We could give the perfect benevolent president absolute powers and it wouldn't change the decisions they make because they're doing them for the best interests of our society. But there's some problems with those benevolent dictators, if you will. So the first is it's really hard to identify whether they're going to be a benevolent autocratic ruler or not. The second is people change. So can we say with certainty that somebody who begins in a benign, completely trustworthy fashion doesn't eventually have the power seep into their own investment decision-making process? And then the third is around transition to the next generation. What's the likelihood that even if we found the perfect leader this generation, that the next generation will also have the perfect leadership? So because of these problems, companies, countries also, but companies need excellent corporate governance to protect the shareholders. And it begins with the board. That's not a surprise. So the right board. What do you look for in the board? What are some of the indicators of a healthy board? Yeah. So the board obviously has to be predominantly of independent orientation. You know, I think most boards today are still either hand selected or recommended by the CEOs. Well, that's not optimal in terms of independence. I mean, what do you want the board to have? You want them to have incredible industry skills that give you cutting edge industry knowledge where the company competes. If there is any kind of material capital allocation planned in a different space that's outside where the company currently operates, they need to have that skill set on the board. If they're not in Brazil, but they plan on some kind of a meaningful presence in the future in Brazil, they require that geographical expertise. They need probably at least one person or two people who are really well-versed on accounting. If there's a regulatory overlay to the business or regulatory risks, there needs to be somebody who's got that kind of regulatory expertise. And what does the board do? Well, I think one of the most critical decisions the board has to make is management compensation. And here's an area where I think most boards get it wrong. So most boards do an okay job by, for top management, providing them low fixed and high variable compensation. The problem with the variable portion, even though it's high, which should be because when the company does extraordinarily well for the shareholders, then management should do extraordinarily well. There should be a direct linkage between those two. But most boards still pay with options and they've got quantitative metrics to help determine the vesting schedules for those options. But options are not the way that underlying shareholders think about the business. The business we invest in is purchased through our own capital and our clients' capital. Everybody worked hard to collect that capital and it's a direct one-for-one share kind of investment exposure. 
Well, if management ideally is paid in restricted stock or even more ideally makes a big purchase of stock at the same purchase prices that we make when we enter into the business, then we're perfectly aligned with that management. And, you know, it's really hard to know what that right number is. But if an incoming CEO has a, I don't know what the number is, say a $10 million net worth, you know, two, three, four, five million dollars of that net worth, I think the CEO should probably be okay purchasing with their own money shares in stock that align them perfectly with the shareholders. Very, very few CEOs do that. So related to this, talk to me about asset liability mismatch. And in your book, there are like three things that jump out for me. One is that you have these lists of mismatches, rollover risk, economic cycle, credit spreads. And then you also talk about currency mismatch. And then you also offer WeWork as an example of a mismatch. Can you just briefly talk to us about as a strategist, what should I be thinking about with regard to asset liability mismatch? Operational mismatches can happen all over the place for corporations. The larger they are, the more complex they are, the more geographies they're in, the more risk of mismatches. So I've looked pretty extensively at Brazil and other emerging markets. And what a lot of emerging markets companies do is they want to raise some debt and they look at the high interest rates they'd have to pay locally and the relatively lower interest rates they have to pay in U.S. dollar debt. So they choose less expensive U.S. dollar debt And then intentionally, for the most part, take a currency mismatch where if their currency weakens over the duration that that debt is outstanding, well, it's going to increase their financial leverage and be more expensive in terms of the debt they have to pay back later. And, you know, everything's great as long as the currency exchange rates remain stable. And then all of a sudden there's a Turkish political cycle, which leads to a 60% devaluation in the currency. And you begin to see, okay, which companies were making the most use of what looked like prudent financial management, but turned out to be potentially fatal financial risks. Yeah. Then in that case, you're kind of not in the business of whatever your core business is, but you're in the currency arbitrage business or something like that. And that may not be within your domain of competence. Maybe just briefly explain that also with the case of WeWork, because in WeWork, my understanding is that you've got kind of a timing mismatch in that you've used these long-term liabilities, but short-term revenues. Exactly right. I mean, at one point, WeWork, I think its peak funding round was at a $40 billion valuation. And the whole premise of the business model was they take out 20-year leases for grade A office space, and they sell it on monthly and annual basis to their customers. What could go wrong and exactly what we expected materialized and they're not filling their office space with enough. And by the way, there's a very cyclical component to their customer base. So during the peaks, you're more likely to want to spend up for a WeWork subscription, which weren't cheap at the peak. They've gotten substantially less expensive. I'm suddenly now getting more promotions again for discounted memberships. But that is a really precarious kind of business, and it's been tried before, and it failed, and somehow WeWorks was able to convince SoftBank that this time was different. Yeah. Also, they're under current governance that also entangles WeWork as well. There's so many points here that we could cover, but we only have a little more time with you. Talk to me about valuation. You talked about these two different types of CEOs. Can you just summarize the two different types of CEOs? How does a strategist know that we're messaging appropriately to the market? 
valuations are going to be volatile. So on average, my personal experience has been that companies are relatively tethered within a reasonable band to valuation most of the time. So most of the time, there's not an obvious disconnect between price and value. And in the minority of situations, there is usually some kind of a reason that was probably well-founded at the beginning where valuations start to decline. So for example, with the telecom equipment companies today, well, there is a little bit of technology risk. What does the future look like? But there is a nice at least five-year tailwind to the 5G replacement or upgrade cycle. And yet, over the next one to two years, there is some cyclical uncertainty about what the spend will be. And the guidance so far from the main customer base has been spending is likely to be flat to down. So that makes it not particularly exciting for investors, a lot of whom are looking for kind of immediate growth or guidance of growth of earnings looking ahead. So it becomes a little bit of perceived dead money. And valuations are suddenly at 10 times earnings for companies that have pretty good moats around their business and are likely in the long run to benefit from these tailwinds. So valuation is at the whims of the market. And most of the time, it's reasonably well tethered. Sometimes it's not. And I think that's really the opportunity for investors. For corporates, I think the goal of valuation should be don't let it get too crazy high and don't let it get too crazy low. I think Buffett's got it right. And I think a CEO and the CFO should definitely not feel that it's their obligation to go out there and raise the stock price. That is not their job. Their job is to operate the business. Now, why do they do that in the first place? Well, most of them think it's their job. I think that's kind of implicitly guided as part of their job description. But look at their incentives. If 80% of their compensation is based on variable comp and a third of that is based on stock price outperformance relative to the peer group, of course they're going to promote the stock. So I think it is, to a large extent, that behavior is incented by false incentives going back to the corporate governance process. Gotcha. Yeah, and we can see how they start interdepending, you know, corporate governance and compensation would motivate me to want to push valuations above a fair intrinsic value, which then also can create the asset liability mismatch, which can then cycle back again. All right, so I think we have time for one more. Talk to us about financial leverage. Absolutely. So my observation has been over time, and this is based on anecdotal evidence, but also a decent amount of statistical work that's been done by me and others, is that the best businesses are relatively lower leverage. And the reason is that they have stronger than average free cash flow and can generate higher than average returns on equity and incremental returns on equity with lower leverage. So I was looking at Amazon not that long ago, and Amazon is one of those businesses that they were free cash flow negative from the inception of the business through 2002. But I think it was in the 2002 annual letter, Bezos said, we're just about to the point where we cover fixed costs. Again, looking at another reason to pass that's being incorporated into this one. And we believe from this point forward, we should be able to be free cash flow positive in spite of our incremental investments. And that's exactly what Amazon has done. So they invest massively in all kinds of call options. And some of them will work out, some of them won't. Maybe at this point, they have too many of these call options in their portfolio. Maybe they need to pair those back. I don't know. But it's all been funded with internally generated free cash flow. It's a great business. 
when you say call options, you're talking about products or services that could potentially hit, but they have optionality. You're not talking about financial call options. Yeah, absolutely. You're 100% correct, Kaihan. So AWS is kind of that classic example of something that, well, was a new industry, was out of the area of core competency. They were willing to invest a lot of free cash flow into it over a lot of years. And now it's a multi-hundred billion dollar business. You know, financial leverage is one of these areas. It really signals the level of management prudence. So if a company is too aggressive with its financial borrowings, it's a company that to varying degrees wants to swing for the fences. Well, for a business that you want managed as a perpetuity, do you really want management in the dugout who are swinging for the fences, who have that kind of risk anything mentality? In my opinion, no. But there is a place for a more speculative element. It's just not something I think that fits into the typical long-term investor's portfolio. And managers can do a really good job of communicating how they think about the level of necessary prudence and how they plan to navigate in advance through an economic cycle. So most businesses have some level of cyclicality. The more cyclical it is, the lower leverage should typically go as the economic peak approaches. Basically, putting money in the bank and saving it for a rainy day, which you know will come, which will protect the business on the way down and also give you massive opportunities because the truth is most companies don't navigate to a lower leverage near peak. They do the opposite. They become more confident, overconfident. More deals seem to happen at peaks. And those companies enter the next downturn weakened while the ones who are prudent with leverage enter it strengthened. Yes, yes. All right, this is fascinating. I'm going to completely oversimplify here something that's a much more complex set of interdependencies. What I heard was, let's really focus on corporate governance and compensation and making sure that that's aligned with investors. Let's test for asset liability mismatches by doing some sensitivity tests. Let's keep valuations tethered to intrinsic value and be straightforward with investors as to what the true value is. Really manage leverage, keeping it low, using free cash flow instead of leverage to invest in those call options or commit to share buybacks. Those are four of the big pieces of advice that I heard for a strategy officer. Ralph, thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this book. I really loved it. In addition to people reading the book, buying it, reading it, are there any other ways that readers or followers can stay in touch with you? Uh, not particularly, Kaihan. So I tend to keep a relatively lower profile, maybe through you. How about that? Okay, great. Well, thank you, Ralph, for writing this book and sharing with us a career's worth of on-the-street learned advice and for packaging it so cleanly for us. Thank you, Ralph. Kaihan, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an honor. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.